ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Dave Durrell, welcome. Actually, this is this is also weird. I mean, I say this quite often, but with you, this is definitely the truth. You don't look really any different at all. I mean, you're a bit younger than me, so maybe that's it. <laughs> I can't be that much younger than you, Steve. I'm, it's very flattering and I'll accept it. Thank you very much. Okay, um, with, with these podcasts, I always start a little bit about the childhood because there's always a relation between things that happen in your childhood when you're brought up and the, the events that you, know, that you see and you're surrounded by and the influences you're surrounded by and where you go in your life. And I just wondered what sort of music you were surrounded by in the home as a young child and what sort of music your parents played. <gasps> parents don't really come into it. Um, not because I didn't have parents, I did, but they really weren't about music. My biggest influences were my sisters, both, who, both of whom were older than me. Um, I still are older than me by a few years, but not many. And um, the eldest was kind of a de facto parent for me for a while uh, and uh, looked after me as if I was her toddler. And uh, when she was working at Bieber, which was a legendary um, hippie, post hippie shopping emporium in London's Kensington, uh, she was working for Barbara Hulaniki there and uh, I'd get taken there and sat down in the fountain bar eating ice cream, Smarty Sundays we used to have and um, she was a big influence. She was very much into I guess kind of like the whole music of that period so for me things that I would really influence would the covers of Jimi Hendrix Are You Experienced album and uh, Axis Boulder's Love and these things and then musically she was listening to everything from obscure bands like Groundhog and Hendrix etc and through the Beatles um, into I guess what happened then which was my other sister uh, who is a, a few years older than me and in between the two uh, of my oldest and me um, she got into I guess kind of like Stax and Motown and Soul so I really got this kind of like rock coming from one side and then kind of like dance music, R&B from the States coming from the other side with a little sprinkling of kind of um, Scar and Blue Beat, which was also kind of like really the sound of London streets, I think, back at the end of the 60s and the early 70s. So those were the things that really kind of influenced me very early on. Um, 
I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to delve in, in an area that's uncomfortable. So just tell me. Ooh. But you know, I had I, I had uh, parents where my father was emotionally absent and then physically absent. He didn't want Ooh. a third child. I was a third child. Didn't have much to do with me. Okay. And my mother didn't really see sort of the cultural world uh, in a way that could be something that that was financially or emotionally valuable in your life. Mm. Um, and that's why I asked, because parents often have uh, an impact on you. So were they around or? or... It, really not so much around for me. I mean, my, my um, situation family-wise is a little Mike Lee movie, you know, secrets and lies kind of scenario, um, where the person I grew up believing my father was my father, wasn't my biological father, it turned out. Um, that man I met much later in life. Um, so none of my fathers have had any influence on me musically at all. Um, and my mother, um, she had a period in hospital and convalescence and was also really not that tuned in to music, you know, and even today, you know, I think, um, you know, she's not really that bothered. The radio is always on at the uh, place down in Whitstable, but um, I don't think music really is the, you know, yeah, the reason I ask is, I mean, that's really fascinating for me because Dave Garn had a similar experience, didn't he? His, he found out his father was in the kitchen, his real father was in the kitchen one day and he walked into the kitchen at 10 years of age or something mm. and was introduced to his real father I, where he thought kind his, of, you know. Kind of happened very similar to me, though I wasn't actually introduced at that point to the person that I know did meet me when I was probably 9, 10. Um, and in fact, it took me a long time I was, I think, in my 30s, mid-30s by then, and married with children, and uh, looking in the mirror one day and shaving, I kind of, like, I, had, I was shaving off quite a bit of beard. I've always had a lot of face fuzz, and um, I had half of the kind of shaving foam off, and I looked in the mirror, and I was like, this is interesting. I see my mum, and then I see somebody else. Who is that somebody else? Anyway, I wiped the rest of the foam off my face and went and called my sister. And I said, who's my dad? <laughs> she, she was like, oh, uh, you, you have to talk to Auntie Joan. I was like, okay, give me Auntie Joan's number. So then the next time phoning Doncaster in Yorkshire. And um, I, I'm like, Joan, hello, it's your you know, nephew, David. And she's like, oh, hi, David. Always very nice to me. Um, I now know the reason for that. Um, and um, yeah, she, she cut a long story short. She said, well, yes, um, why don't you give me your number? So I gave her my mobile number. And the following day, the phone went. The phone just went in the afternoon. I picked up the phone. I'm like, hello. And then a voice at the other end said, hello, is that David? And I knew immediately who this was. Um, and shortly after we, uh, we agreed to meet, I went down to Liverpool Street Station. He said he'd be in a three o'clock train or something. And uh, I waited dutifully by the, uh, you know, or on, on the concourse there, waiting for his train to come in, so to speak. And people filed off of that train. Um, and I thought, well, he hasn't turned up. And then the very, very, very last person to come out, way after everybody else, and I immediately was like, ah, that's him. There's absolutely no mistaking. In fact, 
you asked me to send you some photographs. I should send you one which was given to me after his death a few years ago by my half-sister. I have a half-sister and a half-brother who, um, you know, I guess I've only known latterly. And um, what to say? Yeah, I think it's virtually impossible to tell the difference between a 19-year-old him and a 19-year-old me. And people look at it and say, is that, is that you? And I'm like, no, it's not me, because it looked quite old, the photograph. And uh, you say I haven't changed much, which is, as I say, very flattering as I'm pushing into my... Yeah, I'm there, whatever. I'm there, whatever. Um, you don't need to know, you don't yeah. need to know. I mean, the, the, the thing is, you see, I, I went through a load of therapy in later life. And one thing that really came up was that one of the reasons that we sort of came to the, to, you know, to acknowledge was that because my father didn't show a lot of interest in me when I was young, young that I sort of searched for love or attention. And maybe one of the reasons why I ended up on TV did you see what I mean? And I wonder Ooh. then, because there is some sort of parallel there, that I maybe, and also Dave Garn. If you think Dave Garn turned into a rebel as a teenager, I, I dare say it must have been that moment, you know. Uh, I'm sure I was seeking attention. I mean, at the age of 15, um, influenced by a guy in the year above me at school, whose name is Gary Crowley. And if you're in the UK, you may well know Gary for many years of dedicated and fantastic radio work and journalism, etc. Um, and, and a real character and a, a young man who single handedly led, I think, a whole gang of us out of the cultural wilderness, in some respects by saying, we're going to start a fanzine. And we started a punk fanzine at the age of 15. Um, and by this time, I mean, I'd been listening to what everyone else was listening to at that point, I think, if they had any taste, was Bowie, T-Rex, both who I still love, of course, you know, deeply, um, and, and a whole heap of other bands. But punk was just about to pop its head around the corner. And Gary was on that scene so early, considering he was no more than 15, 16, um, he was going to see the jam at gigs in pubs in West London, you know, early shows for The Clash and The Vibrators and, and these bands, you know, that kind of really would suddenly, you know, explode um, as they did. And we would got into kind of great position, really, uh, starting a fanzine that Gary decided would be called The Modern World in homage to the Jams uh, record. And um, I was the punk poet. Uh, my friend Chris Clun, who's a fantastic photographer still, was the uh, kind of punk photographer. And we were blessed uh, when we realized that two members of the Sex Pistols were living on the same street as our school. See, this doesn't happen in every city. We're very lucky to be living in London in the mid 70s and uh, on Bell Street, which is in West London near the Edgware Road. Um, and not particularly, you know, kind of like wonderful place back at the time. It was very poor and um, yet above what is a legendary bike shop, Bell Street Bikes. Uh, yeah, Paul Cook and Steve Jones were living and um, yeah, loving and all sorts of things. And we went and we got an interview just by pestering them. And uh, we had a pretty much exclusive interview with the Sex Pistols as they were riding high. And uh, the next thing we knew, we were on radio being interviewed as young fanzine writers about our school published fanzine, The Modern World. And we scooped everyone. 
I mean, you were 15, you said back then. Yeah, can, can absolutely. You, have you looked yeah. back and, and, look, and sort of looked at what sort of questions you asked? Oh, God, no, Mag, Maggie Norden and Gary does all the talking. It still does. <laughs> Gary can get five more words into a second than you can, any time. What impact do you think punk had on you? Because punk Huge. was, yeah, I mean, punk was the music. It was fashion. You know, it was those Jamie Reed incredible graphics. You know, there, it was such, it was a universe in, in, in a sense. Absolutely. I, I, I would ride around our council estate in central London on my Raleigh racer um, in a Marks and Spencer's plastic bag as a top. That is what happened in punk. We would staple our flared trousers together to make straight trousers. Um, and um, along with the fanzine, I remember just, I couldn't wait for the Sex Pistols, you know, anniversary time again for God Save the Queen, but never mind the bollocks. I remember my, um, yeah, uh, an older relation coming down to stay and I get kicked out of the room, um, uh, but I left, the Sex Pistols album out on the on the turntable, you know. Never mind the bollocks. I I thought this is giving it to old people. <laughs> <You know. laughs> I, I read somewhere that you actually saw Sid Vicious go past on his motorbike. Absolutely true. Yes, um, <laughs> they just changed the law. You had to wear helmets, I think, at that point, and uh, he was just going past on this like Suzuki one two five, no helmet, no t-shirt, leather jacket over the top and just the absolute epitome of freedom. And that's what it all really spoke about, I think, to us. It was do what you want, do what you like, you know, rip up the rule book and, you know, you can be anything you want. And I think that's a fantastic uh, message. I, well, it's definitely something that you've lived your life by, that you haven't actually followed one thread in your life. You've done so many different things, and I'll come to that later. But one thing that interests me, because um, I knew him a little bit, uh, was that you went to school, the same school as Luca Anzalotti. Luca, and, yeah, Luca was thrown into my lap one day um, when... The, uh, the, the year master opened the door of one of our classes and said, um, new kid, your class, um, he's Italian, Darrell, look after him. That was it, you know. And, and so I got to give, you know, terrible back in the day. He said his name's Spaghetti and that was it. <laughs> it was the 70s. Um, and Luke and I became very, very good friends. Um, and still are good friends, uh, even though we've been through all sorts of ups and downs in our lives. Um, and it was very funny, actually, because Luca come from a well-to-do middle-class Italian family. His father was uh, working for the Banca di Roma or Banca d'Italia, one of these, and was, I guess, uh, sequestered over to London to work in the city. And they had a nice house and all of this. and. I came from like a very poor working class council uh, estate background. Luke had money for things like import records, which I just was like, who can who could possibly ever afford an import record? You know, um, and also being canny as Luca is and was, um, you know, he was he was taping them down on his home hi-fi uh, and selling cassettes of otherwise impossible to hear albums 
by Japanese jazz funk masters and, you know, heavyweight vinyl from America, you know, wasn't going to be released ever in the UK. So we had a lot of good music and we started to go to clubs together. I mean, one thing that's, you know, just to say who Luca is for people that listen, because Luca Anzalotti is one half of Snap with Michael Munzing um, and, you know, became incredibly well known through the the work that they they did together. And of course was based in in Frankfurt, and Frankfurt rears its beautiful head in in your life, as it did with me. I think I I was going by plane. I've jumped a bit and I come back again, but I was going by plane to um, to Frankfurt when I worked at MTV. You know, every few yeah. weekends because I wanted to go to Dorian Gray, which was under the airport, and also when the Omen started to go to the to the Omen. I DJed the Omen. I did go to Dorian Gray, of course, but um, yeah, I actually DJed the Omen with Sven Veit and Moby at a May Day party. There you go. That oh wow! Was long, that was like nineteen ninety one or something I mean, yeah back. i mean those clubs for me uh in that day and i want I, i've jumped so i'm going to go back but those clubs for me in that day was something almost akin to a religious experience Completely. do you know what i mean i'd go to the go to the omen what on a friday not to the omen i'd go to frankfurt airport on a friday night go downstairs to the dorian gray mm. and i'd come out on sunday afternoon <laughs> fly back and yeah. go to work on the monday what was special about those those clubs in Frankfurt that was different to the clubs at that period in London, do you think? Mm. That's difficult to say if there was that much of a difference, but I would say, I mean, certainly, I mean, both of them had a incredible sound systems compared to virtually anywhere in London that I could think of. Um, and I, I, you know, I was DJing at Raw in, in, in uh, you know, around that time, I guess, 84, 85, 86, 87, something like that. Um, and we brought in a sound system each week, which was huge and actually excellent. But these places were in a different, you know, kind of like category. They had super sound systems. Dorian Gray had things like strobes built into the ground. You felt like you were in Star Trek and getting beamed up. Um, they also had the, was, the sound systems where you could sit in the, you sat in the speakers. All of these things, you know, I mean, don't forget, Omen is Sven Veit's first kind of real attempt at building a club. Um, and he'd spent his life in clubs already. I mean, Sven was working as a light jockey when Michael and uh, Luca discovered him, I think, or he discovered them, whatever. And um, they made the first record together, which was Electrica Salsa's Off, which was the number one in Germany which brings me back to Luca, which was Luca and I fell out at the end of school over a girl we met in a club. Like we fell out so badly and I broke his heart so badly. And I apologize again, Luca, many times for this one, you know, but teenagers love it's, it's a complicated game, you know, so it's a very difficult dance. And um, I was completely out of order, I'm sure. But uh, the thing was, we actually stopped seeing each other for a couple of years. And, and then um yeah a few years passed and i got news from my partner um that she was pregnant and i um yes um i went around to see my mum thinking i've got no choice but to tell her that i'm gonna be uh, you know 
a father. So I went back round to Bloomsbury where I lived and where I, I had lived as a teenager, where my mother still lived in the centre of London. Things were so innocent in those days that she still didn't lock her front door. So um, this is, you know, kind of like back in the 80s. And as I walked into her house without even so much as ringing the doorbell or knocking on the door, literally just opened the door, knowing it would be open, and walked in, the phone rang. And this is absolutely 100% true story. Uh, the phone was an old, no mobile phone, you know, a proper phone. It was ringing on the table by the front door where they used to be kept. And I picked it up and I was like, hello. And a voice at the other end said, hi, I'm looking to speak with David. I said, you're speaking with him. He's like, uh, this is Luca. I was like, well, that's a remarkable coincidence. You, he's like, do you still live there? I said, no, I've just walked around to see my mum to tell her I'm going to have a baby. At which point I turned around, my mum was standing there looking at me, glowering. And um, we agreed to meet up immediately. Uh, I said, where are you? He said, I'm at the Hilton in Park Lane. So dutifully got into a taxi and headed over to Park Lane. Um, walked into the Hilton, looked for the front desk, walking out jumps this guy from behind a pillar. He'd literally been waiting for me. And um, Dave, that was it. We got talking. He said, uh, yeah, we've made a record. It's number one in Germany. I said, that's funny. I said, we're going to be number one in, in England next week. We'd pump up the volume. Uh, <laughs> what chances? I mean, really, life's filled with magic if you look for it, I think. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. I'll come to all that later. I'm just going to go back to the, I mean, I know you started DJing at school, um, but I want to come back to the early 80s because I found that was such an interesting period for me because it's when I moved up to London and mm. there were these clubs, you know, Dirtbox, Phil Dirtbox, the Dirtbox. Uh, there were, oh, D-Mob. D-Mob, yes, the course. shop. I, I, I used to go to the shop I, all the time. And then the clubs, yeah. Uh, you know, a fantastic scene in London. And I think you have to remember, it was very small. There were a handful of cool shops. That was all. There was, you know, D-Mob. I went there religiously to get my hair cut at D-Mob. In fact, I even modelled. You asked me to send you some photographs. I'm going to send you photographs of me modelling for D-Mob. I look pretty good, i got to say. But anyway, um, those... You know, shops like that, Body Map in Covent Garden, um, you know, what was the shop up in uh, Camden on Camden Road? Um, oh my gosh, there, there were like, you know, a few places, obviously Kensington Market over West and, uh, you know, a couple of places on the King's Road. That was but, it. it, was, it but, was but tell me scene. about tell me about the warehouse party scene, because this was a this was fantastic. I remember to be honest, and this is where I think there is a similar similarity or where it's like maybe the the birth of of what came later when Acid House came is that as a gay man, I felt very comfortable in these parties and it mm. was they were very mixed and they were very it was they felt very new. They would and also they were very uh, illegal. <laughs> they were often not in warehouses. They were in sort of other establishments. Yeah. But they were great fun. They had great music and they had a really interesting and what I felt was a really fascinating and inspiring crowd. How did you view those parties and how important were they in the development they, they of what was later to come? Hugely important. And yeah, at the same time, we're talking about ultimately just a few years. Uh, I think the spirit was born out of punk. Um, in, in some respects. Um, 
I was I was lucky enough living in the centre of London to have access or knowledge at least of things you know kind of uh, and and also older sisters in the scenes to you know kind of like I guess gave me a leg up. Um, I was going to the Blitz, you know, kind of at the beginning of the eighties. Um, and I mentioned that because even though it was a club and not a warehouse, I think the spirit of the Blitz is, is what you're alluding to. It was where all of the fringe characters in the world, and that of course meant also, you know, those of any sexual persuasion, I should say, um, were to be found. And that scene fed into things like, you know, we'd go and play pool on a Monday night at Heaven. Why? Heaven was one of the few good clubs in London and it was open and you could play pool. Um, and of course, there would be the people that made up that scene and they were mostly from art colleges. They'd moved up from South Wales, like Steve Strange and Chris Sullivan and, and into town from Yorkshire and parts of Scotland and all sorts. They were, I guess, you know, kind of like uh, moths attracted to the occasionally flickering light of London's underground. Uh, and that was, you know, that gave birth to people wanting to do parties of their own without the restrictions of the clubs or the pubs. Uh, and, and so, you know, these things kind of grew up. D-Mob, you know, kind of famously on Rosebury Avenue, um, again, just around the corner from where I was living at the time in Islington. Um, yeah, doghouse or whatever it was called back then. Um, but I, I was doing parties at the beginning of the eighties in, in the kind of tenements around the back of King's Cross, Battle Bridge Road. And those were parties that involved people like Nana Cherry, um, TV food expert today, uh, Andrea Oliver, the mother of Makita Oliver and the TV generation there. Um, but Sean Oliver, who was a member of the band Rip Rig and Panic, that both Andy and Nana were in, along with uh, a number of other great musicians um, from Bristol uh, uh, as well. Um, and so these kind of connections, you know, were one thing after the other. You know, that you'd meet more people, they'd introduce you to another scene. So through, through the Battle Bridge gang, you know, you might meet the Mutoid Waste Party people who were busy you know, welding together bits of cars and old piping to make monstrous, you know, kind of uh, sculptures. But, you know, it was a very, very uh, vibrant scene where there was a lot going on in terms of art and music and culture and, and media, you know, which is kind of like where I slip into the NME because Gary Crowley is the receptionist at the NME when I leave school. Wow. Right. It was and that's, that how you, that's how you got in. That was kind of how I got in. Yes, because um, Gary scalped photographs uh, after the modern world and its demise. Gary left school, got job as receptionist at the New Musical, New Musical Express, which was possibly the world's leading music paper at the time, um, along with Rolling Stone in America. And um, I started, well, I had the idea of starting another fanzine. Um, so um, I, I kind of started putting together the first edition of something called Salo 123 Days of Sodom, um, named after the Pasolini movie. Um, 
which I think at the time I hadn't even seen. <laughs> but it sounded good. Ooh, it sounded amazing. <laughs> and when I actually did see it, I was like, oh my God, this is the most, like, oh. oh. <laughs> that's, that's another scene from I that. know it well, yes. Yeah. So um, I started to do this and, and working in the pub with my sister, uh, Joanne, uh, across the road in Bloomsbury at the Rugby Tavern uh, were two members of uh, an aspiring girl group called Banana Rama. So um, the girls were all living in a flat on the council estate around the corner from where I was living with my mum. They are quite literally still living at home, still at school. And um, keen to get this fanzine, I thought I'll interview these girls from Banana Rama. I see them in the pub. They talk to me. So uh, the next thing we did an interview and Chris Clun, my friend from school, great photographer, photographer for, you know, the punk photographer from the fanzine, took the photographs. What I didn't know was that the girls also took a couple of copies of the photographs and gave it to Gary Crowley, who then put it into the enemy, who published the photographs of the new hot group in town, Banana Rama. So I was, I opened the enemy that week and was absolutely devastated to see these photographs somehow in the enemy. So I called the enemy because I was young and stupid. And um, I got put through to the editor, Neil Spencer. Um, and I was like, I, copyright infringement. You know, we've got photographs that you've published without our permission. And he's like, Gary gave me them. <laughs> I'm like, what, Gary Crowley? Yes, Gary Crowley. I'm like, what's Gary got them for? Ah. Anyway, I was ranting by now. And Neil Spencer said, look, he said, I can't do anything about it. It's happened. Why don't you come in and see me and uh, we can discuss it in person. So the next thing I was having a, a meeting with the editor of the NME, which was like meeting God at the time. And um, at the end of the meeting, you know, I was com completely unaware of that I was in an office. I'd never been to an office before in my life. And, um, or that I was in the editor's office and behind me were other offices filled with journalists who I worshipped. Paul Morley, Ian Penman, Danny Baker, Julie Birchall, etc. Uh, and yeah, at the end, he gave me two tickets. He said, he said, go along and see this band next week and bring me 500 words. And, you know, if it's any good, I'll publish it. Well, that's amazing. Now, NME sort of opened up the world in a sense for you, didn't it? Because totally. you, you could uh, travel around, go to different places uh, around the world. Um, what were your impressions as you went? To, I know you went to uh, New York. And in... My first trip abroad was Amsterdam to interview Curtis Blow, legendary early, early OG rapper. Um, you know, a great rapper, in fact. I can't remember what happened from the minute I got into his hotel room to the moment I left Amsterdam. I don't even think I brought a story back. But they didn't seem to mind that. And then they sent me to New York. <laughs> so tell me about New York of that era, because I've just done, I just interviewed Man Parish. And... I, I, oh, by the way, I, I can only ever hope to aspire to be as good an interviewee as Man Parish. Um, <laughs> uh, just in awe. Always has been. And even more so today. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, what a life. What wow. an incredible wow. life. But, um, I mean, he, he really gave 
I think in many ways a wonderful description of of New York of 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 that era. Now, as someone coming from London from a different base culture mm. and going to New York and then having access in New York to all those all those clubs, all those you know very um, extreme uh, places that were sort of available. How was that, and how did you view that scene in comparison to what you knew in London? I, I was already looking towards New York for inspiration at the time. I was already listening to music coming from the States. Um, I was already dressing, I guess, kind of by that stage in kind of like almost like quasi kind of hip hop, you know, uh, way. Uh, kind of Nike, like shell suit type business going on and big sneakers. Um, and I remember just the, just like the wonderment of New York. Um, I'm very blessed to go with uh, somebody that had been before, um, who was my kind of uh, trip partner, partner um, Peter Anderson, incredible photographer, um, uh, very, you know, kind of uh, funny uh, and, and streetwise Scottish man, uh, a couple of years older than me, but at the time it seemed like decades of experience more, and uh, probably was. You know, we went into New York. He said, let's let's go into New York like this. And we went on the subway from JFK into the heart of New York in December and come out something like 44th Street, 42nd Street, into what was just swirling clouds of snow that seemed to go up endlessly in a way I couldn't quite fathom. Um, and there was a Father Christmas ringing a bell. It was, it was just like being in Home Alone. You know, Donald Trump could have walked by me and shook hands at that moment. I wouldn't have been surprised. Um, and then I realized I was looking endlessly up to these kind of canyons of, of skyscrapers. And we were in Manhattan, Manhattan of films and music. And, you know, you could hear that sound. It was New York throbbing kind of in the background. And um, we did everything. We walked well, up what to What fascinated you about the subculture in New York? What fascinated you about that? Um, you know, there's always that element of the exotic, you know? Um, and yet it was also new. It, you know, kind of, uh, I remember my first exposure to rap was when the editor of uh, another music paper, Black Echoes, came back from the States with a 12-inch of the Sugar Hill Gang. That was my, I, I was like, what is this? I didn't even understand it as a language of music. Um, you know, it took me a long time to kind of understand all of the links back into the last poets and Gil Scott Heron and, you know, further back. But at the time, it was music from an alien dimension. And then going to the clubs, the clubs we'd heard about already in London, Danceteria, um, an area, uh, and these in incredible places, on the first night we were there, we stumbled into um, the Tony Shafratzi Gallery in downtown uh, at the time, and um, Keith Haring was having a show. And in, in the basement of this huge show with these giant Keith Haring sculptures, paintings everywhere, um, and a huge crowd. I must have walked by everybody in New York that night, unbeknownst to me. I probably walked by all of Blondie, all of the talking heads, all of everybody. 
uh, completely green, you know, completely green. Went down into the basement, which had been floor, walls, ceiling, the, the, everything was in a kind of vivid, key-tarring, fluoro green with his characters, you know, uh, swirling around on all surfaces. And in the corner, Grandmaster Flash was part of the installation DJing. You know, I've told people that before, and I don't think they believe me, but I can assure you, I wasn't tripping. That is what it was. I, I just stood there. I'm like, that's Grandmaster Flash. This, that was my real first exposure to art, like real art, like, wow. And so New York was also that. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Funny enough, I just got interviewed for a book the other day by um, Matthew Colling, who used to write for ID and is writing a new book on the history of electronic music from 1945 to 1990. Um, why do I mention that? Because we got into this conversation about pump up the volume and I said it's funny I've just written to Steve Blame of MTV fame saying that in fact the, the generally accepted story and the one I've even accepted for many years is of course that Ivo who created 4AD stroke of genius by the way and of, of course found incredible bands you know Cocteau Twins etc um, had an idea to get into the charts by putting together his two most popular bands at the time, which seemed to be, in some respects, um, Colorbox, who were, you know, press darlings at the moment, and another band called A.R. Kane, who had a couple of hits in the Enemies indie chart, you know, it was like, kind of like, it was like independent record shops chart, meant you sold a box of records, you know, that was it. Um, and so the generally accepted thing is Ivo had a great idea, put together two bands, let them make a record, and it might aggregate their fans, get in the top 40. They were looking for a top 40 hit. The thing is, that is true to a certain degree. He did suggest that and put the money up for the studio time, but it didn't work. It didn't work because they didn't particularly get on. They didn't fall out, but it just wasn't gelling. And um, though I think I probably prefer the notional b-side the aa side uh ar kane's contribution which is uh, a song called uh, anatina um the story really happens because martin young of Colorbox calls me and says can we go in the studio together now you have to go back a little bit into the story which is the night i'm djing at raw and a guy american guy comes up to me at the end of the night and says i love what you're playing and can we get a drink? I want to talk to you about this project I'm working on. I was like, okay. He said, have you heard of MTV? I said, I've seen MTV. I was like, I've seen MTV. I've been to America, you know? And he's like, uh, okay, great. He said, um, well, I'm working for MTV and I'm helping set up MTV Europe. And we're going to launch in a couple of months. And I really want to get a flavor for Europe and London is so exciting. And the clubs are great and the music's really diverse. And I want to capture that feeling, that spirit. So he said, could you go in the studio and make us some kind of musical, you know, identities for MTV Europe? And I was like, uh, yeah. I had absolutely no idea what I was saying. I just agreed. It was late, four in the morning. We were drunk and he was offering me money. I mean, 
you're bound to go off with a guy that offers you money at four in the morning, right? I mean, it stands, <laughs> stands to reason. Um, but the next thing, I'm, I, I'm on the phone to Martin Young from Colorbox, who I know because I'm managing his best friend, a guy called Dan, who was in a band called Nasty Rocks, which I did sign eventually to Trevor Horn at ZTT, who was super hot back in those days with Frankie Goes Hollywood. He'd produced Grace Jones for Ireland and, you know, uh, art of noise, all of, all of this propaganda. So Martin and me had become friends because of this. And I phoned him because he was the only person I actually knew how to produce anything. And I said, look, I've been given a chunk of money by this guy who wants me to make some music, but I've got no musical skills, got no idea at all. I just know what I want to do. Could we do something? So we went into the studio and we made these idents that become the first musical idents on MTV Europe when it launched in 1987. Scroll forward a uh, short time after this, and Martin calls me from the studio and said, I'm stuck in the studio, and I know really where I'm going with this. I've got this kind of idea for a groove with my brother, but um, can we do what we were doing in the studio for MTV? And I said, sure. So the next day I went over to the studio with a bag of records. And the day after that, I picked up a new record, which I'd been waiting for, which was by Eric B and Rakim on Fulton Broadway records. I'd had it on special order. And I think it was probably the first copy in the country. It was that hot. And uh, lo and behold, um, we went in the studio. I took that in and uh, played it. I was like, wow, this is the best record on the planet right now, which it was. And then I flipped over and there was an acapella. And we took that and that became the basis for what would be, you know, uh, pump up the volume. So how many, how many samples did you actually take to make that track? A lot. A lot. It developed from what was at first really just a groove with the phrase pump up the volume repeated. Um, and then we decided that there was more to be had. And so we built the track out along the lines of what we'd done for MTV, perhaps along the lines of what was also already in play because of incredible uh, Americans, such as Grandmaster Flash, of course. Um, Grandmaster Flash's Adventures on the Wheels of Steel is a precursor, just as Double D and Steinsky's, you know, Lessons, Volume 1, 2, 3 were precursors. And at the same time in London, people um, like Cold Cut, who were already playing around with that Double D and Steinsky kind of idea of creating narratives from samples. And that was a big inspiration for me too. So really, I guess we made a collage of, you know, a few dozen samples. Did you get the rights of every sample? Mm, uh, probably not. No. <laughs> Did you get no. into trouble? Yes, we got into trouble. We got sued by Stock Aitken and Waterman, who were the biggest producers in the country at the time, I think. Um, uh, obviously, you know, with their PWL sound, Kylie and, uh, you know, Rick. Um, we took Rick Astley off number one. I think that is probably what triggered the lawsuit more than anything else. You know, we were in the kind of, uh, we Rick rolled Rick, you know, and uh, respect to Rick Astley, of course. But um, yeah, we took him off number one after a very long run and kept Michael Jackson off of number one for two weeks, which we just felt like, you know, kind of pretty, pretty wonderful at that point. 
We turned down Top of the Pops, and that was that. We kind of disappeared into, you know, the ether soon after. That track, I mean, uh, well, first of all, John was my boss at MTV, and my first boss, he was the boss okay. of the news department when it actually first started. Pretty crazy. So you remember him? I remember him. I remember how wild he was, <laughs> put it that way. Um, yeah, uh, the thing about Pump Up the Volume was that, in a, in a sense, it was, you know, it's, it's said to be like the start of really like the electronic music that really came in, in Britain because it was somehow, it somehow hit that moment and had an explosion. How important do you think that track is in hindsight to what was later to come? Um, I, I think, you know, it's, uh, mm. It's great to defer to others. I mean, Rolling Stone had it in, I think they're kind of like, you know, 100 most important records of the 20th century, along with Nirvana and whatever else was in there, Redemption Song probably or something. And, you know, um, so it's always flattering to be considered somehow seminal. I don't think at the time we had any sense of that. Uh, but at the same time, looking back in history, I do think it did act as a, a kind of entry for a lot of people around the world because it was it was a number one in a number of countries and a top 10 hit in dozens uh, and in some respects it broke down the doors i think um of whatever prejudice there may have been but also because right behind us of course was a slew of music that wanted to come out on its coattails which it, which it did i mean you know mark moore was already a big name dj in london and incredibly into his music and so you know s express followed and Tim Simonon similarly you know with Bomb the Bass those two records kind of help I think form a kind of triumvirate of English popular dance music records that really just took the lid off um, and, it, and that's not to kind of like say that dance music hadn't been making inroads it had there'd already been technically house records in the top 40 and even in the top 20 before Pump Up the Volume went to number one but I think the very fact that you went to number one kind of you know, that really, that, you know, opened the doors, you know, uh, for a lot of things. I think programmers and radio stations, they were like, this is viable. I mean, it was also a precursor to what was the revolutionary part of the 80s, which was like the Acid House stuff in, in the late 80s. And that is also connected to the early 80s with all these clubs where as I sort of mentioned before, that you would feel comfortable in a club, whatever yes. um, uh, minority, let's call it, or what, whatever section of society that you came exactly. from, you all met in the club and you were all the same in the club. And Acid House was that totally, as well as this new revolutionary form of, of music. Um, how important do you think clubs like Trip and Shoom were in that, in that period? I, huge. I mean, you know, kind of already, I guess, you know, you're looking at the DIY ethos that it goes all the way back to punk for sure. Um, but it's there again in the new guys with Danny and Jenny rampling opening Shoom in, in, in a gym, you know, in Southwark Street, um, clandestine, legal 
No, not any more illegal, for instance, than the club I was doing at the YMCA in Tottenham Road with Oliver Payton, Raw. And um, that was a gym, you know, that Ollie, Oliver rented on a Saturday night. Um, again, the police didn't really seem to be that interested. And it was, to all intents and purposes, a proper club. It had proper bar staff, proper door people, um, you know, everything that was necessary. Uh, and Shum also had Jenny at the door and, you know, kind of a sound system that they brought in, et cetera, et cetera. But it was really very much, you know, an illegal underground warehouse party to all intents and purposes. And, you know, I think the clubs that were really the bridge between, you know, things like, um, you know, D-Mob's doghouse party uh, or whatever, and Dirtbox, Phil and Rob, and I DJed for Dirtbox. They opened up parties above chemists in old ruined apartments and, you know, um, we broke into warehouses in West London and over by the river. Wherever they could find that they could get in cheap or free, that would become the location. You know, flyers, handbills would be the ticket, the invitation, and then that would be it. You might bring your own beer. There might be some warm cans of pills or something, you know, on offer. And it was a great free for, and they were, they were totally kind of, you know, liberated, you know, um, and back to your question about was there a difference between London and Frankfurt? Frankfurt definitely had better technicals, but uh, it, the wildness, that was already there in London, you know, and had been, I think, through 85, 86, 87, into this new generation of clubs, Spectrum, Future, Paul Oakenfold, a big mover and shaker in that scene. And his roots really were, I guess, listening to hip hop, starting kind of like a record pool going to new york he was you know i remember paul when he worked in clothes shops and used to serve me trousers you know um and we'd talk about music and what was going on and then he got involved with def jam promoting their records and the next thing yeah he was you know he was at the forefront of music he had uh, you know connections i mean this was sort of a moment that london became an electronic city in a lot of ways wasn't it and that the it had been built on factors that were there in the past, as you mentioned, like the, the clubs, uh, the illegality, the fact that they it took place in disused or unused mm. locations. So the fact that London was pretty run down was also a contributory factor. What other factors were there, do you think, that contributed to that era suddenly coming together in that way that may not be music or culture? What do you think the other contributing factors um, might be? Are you trying to lead me into saying something about drugs here? No, I don't think just drugs. Might be, well. but, um, <laughs> but there's, there's no, no denying that that's also kind of an aspect of it and always has been. Um, London's nightlife, you know, you can go back to mods staying up all night on Benzedrine and US Army Speed, um, LSD, which, you know, I guess kind of like, you know, as, as you move through the hippie period, clubs like UFO, etc., where my sister would go, um, you know, these clubs, you know, cider, LSD, whatever. And then I think there was a kind of moribund period during the early 70s. Um, and then, of course, 80s, 
you know, you've got different things happening, but obviously the arrival of ecstasy into the country, which happens before house music. Uh, and again, I was say, saying this in the interview the other day with somebody um, that Cindy ecstasy, who was occasional member of soft cell or sung with Mark Armand, um, she got her name not by accident, you know, kind of, uh, and she and others were bringing in capsules of ecstasy in the mid eighties, pre the acid house kind of revolution um, in boxes of Tic Tacs, you know, um, people have been trying to find Cindy recently. I tried to help out. I think she's somewhere in the Midwest and she was a, a wonder. We were good friends back then. Um, the, the, I used to go to Taboo in the mid '80s, and Taboo was, absolutely. you know, a wash. And uh, I'm no innocent either, you know. So no, I, if you think about it, that drug had already done the rounds in, particularly in Texas, I think, in the kind of like '84, '85 period, where it was technically legal and was just seen, I think, as a bit of a party drug, um, not that serious a thing at all. Um, and I'm sure that funneled up to New York to, you know, the gay scene there. Um, and then over, you know, it spilled over into, you know, England, as these things do. Uh, and of course, there was a great deal of exchange between club goers in London and New York and New York and London. You'd see faces propping up the bars at Dance Interior or the Wag Club, vice versa. Um, so it was great. You know, there was traffic, there was human traffic. That's something I kind of see less nowadays which I think is a great shame. Now, one thing after uh, Pump Up the Volume, I mean, you uh, apparently, I didn't even know this, that you actually did make a, another track, but it wasn't released. Is that uh, true? We, we did some bits and pieces in the studio. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, was, there, I, was there a fear of having something released or was it down to rights it, issues? Things or? fell to pieces in very odd ways. Um, uh, yeah, I think success really impacted Martin. I mean, that's, that's just my take on it. You know, I think he became a virtual recluse. And um, I, I started doing other stuff with CJ just because it wasn't really happening. I mean, nor was there real, any, really any impetus from 4AD to see a follow-up. Um, there was legal issues, of course, and that was one of the things. There was a kind of discussion about whether Mars would sue the chocolate bar, you know, kind of... Um, yeah, uh, a Mars a day, yeah, you know, kind of like gets you to, you know, all the way to the old Bailey or something. And um, <laughs> those were the kind of things we were dealing with, you know. Uh, and so CJ and me started going to the studio and do remixes, which we were paid handsomely for at the time, you know, compared to anyone else. Um, and pump, uh, pump Up the Volume was kind of like winding down. Nasty Rocks were kind of on tour with James Brown and Pop Will Eat Itself. And I was being a manager suddenly, not in the band. And um, yeah, I think that's really kind of like what happened. We just drifted apart over a very short period of time. And, and, and so you we, fell into management or is there something? I mean, you were already... No, I'd already been managing. Yeah. That's how I met Martin. Yeah. Um, I think at the time, as it was the mid 80s, we were all like, we need to manage bands. That seemed to be a thing to do. Oliver Payton was managing a band called Habit. He signed to Virgin for about a million pounds or something. Tony Kaye, the great film and uh, American History X director, made the videos at like half a million a pop. It was just mad money time. 
Um, and so I thought I have to manage a band. So I started to manage various bands and the next thing I was a manager. And so, so who uh, were you managing at, you know, at that time you managed Bush, didn't you? And you went, I, went I, on I, I started a, a label called love records. So I now had a management company looking after a couple of DJs, um, Pete Heller and Terry Farley initially, I think. And, um, Frankie Fonsett and Paul Anderson for a minute. Um, and then I had the label and I got a demo of uh, a couple of songs from what at the time was a band called Future Primitive. Um, and I was falling out already after a year with the record label that I'd signed Love Records to, which was Polydor. Um, and one thing or, or another happened and whatever. Cut a long story short, I had this demo and I thought, I'm going to get a deal for this band. I'll manage it. So then I met Gavin uh, through my uh, then partner. Uh, and after that, my wife, uh, Claudia. And um, yeah, I thought there's something here. It took us forever. We couldn't get arrested. It was so against the current of things in the UK, which were slowly moving towards what would become Britpop, Oasis, Blur. It was very, you know, that kind of world. So very English influence, whereas Gavin was very much influenced by American bands. So uh, the Pixies um, and Nirvana and the Breeders. And uh, that took a while to catch fire. We couldn't get arrested in England. I, I went to every friend of mine in every record company, nothing. But it got over to a guy in the States and the next thing they came over and after that, 93, 94, got the deal. And um, that story is a whole, that's a whole book on its, on its own. It, it's amazing how you've always been at the beginning of a, of a new movement or a new phase in a movement, and that you've, you've somehow been at that period. And then you go and manage the Pet Shop Boys who have had you know, yes, this way, massive... way after. Oh, you this know, way after. Okay. So we've got so... we've got the whole of the nineties kind of like. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, you know, that first trip to New York, and I'm not the only journalist being flown out by Chrysalis Records. Um, Neil Neil's the uh, deputy editor editor by then. I'm not sure of Smash Hits, which was a pop magazine, whose offices were directly opposite the enemies on the same floor on Carnaby Street. So we could look out of our window and look into Smash Hits office and they could look across and look into the enemy's office. And so we knew each other anyway, and we'd meet in the same cafes for coffee and sandwiches. Uh, and so, yeah, Neil was on that trip. And that's when I first really met Neil, uh, which would stay, I guess, in both of our minds, because many years later, even though we knew each other from London at that point, we met in uh, Las Vegas, where uh, I'd stopped managing Bush, 9-11 uh, had happened, and I was working with a band called Dirty Vegas, who picked up a Grammy for a track called Days Go By, um, as dance music got its first kind of like new bite in, in, in the States. And we were selling out a show at the Hard Rock. And I think Neil and Chris were playing the following night or something, or they were in Vegas. Uh, and we got talking, they said, you know, can we meet up when, uh, when we're next in London and go for lunch. And I was like, of course, you know, this was like 
2000, 2001, I guess, 2001. And um, so we did. And over lunch, he said, do you want to manage us? And I was like, really surprised. And I was like, yes. But it was too late to kind of like back out by then. And um, in fact, you know, just uh, great to see the boys playing Berlin and sold out show at Mercedes Arena here uh, the other day. Uh, and still just, you know, just indubitably the Pet Shop Boys in all of their wonders. Yeah, I had a friend who went to see them in uh, Frankfurt the other day mm. and just said mm. they were absolutely, uh, yeah, absolutely a amazing. Great really show, amazing. great show. Uh, and so, yeah, that all happens in the kind of like post 9-11 world uh, of, yeah, I guess, pop and culture. So this is, yeah, I mean, okay, this is a bit later, but in between, mm. you start being a curator of mm. art. Um, I start hanging out with artists. And that's how it came about, literally. Yeah. yeah. As simple as uh, that. And um, in fact, I'm off to see a friend uh, for his 50th birthday in, in a, a week or two in the UK. But this person is one of those influential people in life who, after a night in New York, not the second time we met, uh, the first time was in London on New Year's Eve, and then the second time was after a, a drinks and a dinner in New York, and went back to the room and down the best part of a bottle of whiskey. And we talked about art for a long time. And at the end, he said, um, I'm going to do a show, and I want you to co-curate the show with me. And I didn't even know what that meant. So I said yes. And, um, and the next thing, we were looking at this warehouse filled up to our chins with rubble. And I said, this is where the show will be. <laughs> Thinking it's going to take us a year just to dig out all of the bricks and the rubble and rubbish from this, this space. But actually, it did get cleared. And it did become uh, my first dip into the art pool um in that respect um and we curated this show uh with some great artists in and uh it was yeah a real adrenaline rush to 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 do this and to open it and for people to come and uh we got a pick of the week in the guardian i thought wow you know can I, the guardians mentioned our show you know what, it's not out of big what gallery what do you think you brought what did you bring to it that had sort of because of your past and your um, experience in, you know, music and in DJ culture and in club culture, what were you able to bring to it, which was would add to that? Was this John Journal? Um, no, this J John's later. That certainly kind of like builds on all of the things um, you know that have influenced my life, um, and 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 the link really there is poetry more than anything else. You know, I think I said earlier, you know, I wasn't a journalist at the uh, fanzine at school. I was the punk poet writing two line poems, um, which later on got found in this fanzine. And somebody, uh, uh, a very well-known graphic designer of the time in London, used them on a number of sleeves hidden away, the secret punk messages hidden on the sleeves of dance records, funnily enough. If you uh, ever pick up a copy of or the English 12-inch of Johnson Crew's Space Cowboy, for instance, from the mid-80s. Hidden away on there is a couple of my punk poems uh, the graphic designer saw fit to put on there. Um, and 
Likewise, the person in the room, uh, who's an artist today called Robert Montgomery, is also effectively an artist that works with poetry. And um, so we kind of bonded on art and poetry. Uh, and John Giorno later on, obviously, uh, when we did um, our show in, in Venice during the Biennale, you know, I was attracted to John Giorno first and foremost by his poetry. Uh, and, and so that it also played out that he was an artist only came afterwards for me. Uh, and then, you know, kind of like we were blessed to, you know, have him agree to be with us uh, in Venice. Uh, and so, you know, that first show, the, the curation of it, I think it was really that Rob and me kind of like, you know, we chimed somehow, you know, um, the artists I wanted to bring complemented his and somehow it was like writing a, a poem together, just visually. So just, I'm going to, I want to come to the Pet Shop Boys because I've, you know, I've always loved the Pet Shop Boys and, and um, absolutely adored their music and love the fact that they will also uh, be able to incorporate art into what they did. And they, mm. they were, they were something so new and so different. And they've really, you know, as they have along, along that era, progressed and, and changed and developed. And now, of course, are uh, such a sort of institution, but at the same time, you know, uh, um, um, completely loved and appreciated for what they do today and for their history. What do you think you were able to bring to them if you're at a meet, you know, if you're at a lunch with Neil and then you so sort of react in a way, oh, Christ, they're asking me to be a manager. Oh, yeah, I'll do it, but you're not really sure. Um, I, I just, I was, I was like, wow, okay, pet shop boys, you know? Um, I guess, you know, it was impossible not to know the Pet Shop Boys and I, I'd known them anyway, you know, socially. Um, and so there was that. I didn't sit at home listening to Pet Shop Boys albums. In fact, I'm, I'm not the greatest lover of English pop music. You know, catch me on the wrong day. Um, yeah, there, of course, there are exceptions to these rules, you know, and um, I, I love many of the Pet Shop Boys songs very deeply. Um, but yeah, I guess, I think it was perhaps having a, a sense of where they were coming from and also where they were heading toward. Um, and uh, I suspect also that I was interested in these areas that overlap with them. Perhaps, you know, their first manager who they fell out with awfully, of course, was Tom Watkins, uh, RIP Tom. Um, you know, he was art school. Um, and I think, you know, perhaps um, post that, perhaps, you know, they were, they were looking for somebody, I guess, with both, you know, experience in America and, you know, international chops, which I certainly had by then. Um, and also perhaps, you know, some sensitivity towards, you know, how they did things. You know, this was a band that gave their video budget to, you know, um, Wolfgang Tillmans, who spent the money filming a mouse at Tottenham Court Road Station one night. That's the video, you know, I, I'm like, that's great. You know, that's great. Of course, you know, kind of like uh, record companies are having heart attacks at this point. But it was but a great video. It it's a great video it's a and the boys are way ahead. Yeah. And so I think it was, you know, kind of also, you know, as you know, the boys are very plugged into club culture and always have been, you know, great remixes historically from the likes of David Morales and, you know, Danny Tanaglias of this world. 
Um, and I think at that time also, they were in Berlin a lot. I was in Berlin. There was a whole scene developing again, you know, this huge kind of upswelling of minimal techno from, from Germany, but from Berlin particularly, I felt. And um, so I think I understood most of the points on their map. Um, yeah, wasn't such a bad thing. And um, I, I don't I even remember, Chris probably going to kill me. I never talk about the bands I work with in any way like this, but um, I remember we were playing, or we had every intention of playing Hogmanay um, in Edinburgh. Unfortunately, it was the one year it was called off because of 110 mile an hour gusts threatening to take down the stage. And I spent the evening running into that show on the phone from the hotel with the mayor, the head of the police force, the head of fire, head of ambulance, everybody, um, and our production manager and tour manager on site who had, you know, wind gust machines testing out, you know, that, uh, and meantime, you know, rubbish bins are flying down the street and people in their hundreds of thousands are heading towards Edinburgh for their hogmanay. I think I'm going to cut this story actually because <laughs> when it all went down that we couldn't play and at the last minute we had to do it and then we went and we all hived down in somebody's hotel room and got drunk and was like disappointed because you know everyone was really stoked you know and Chris and me were laughing and he said I don't know why we've never had a heterosexual manager before you're great <laughs> And possibly the last one that there ever happened. <laughs> I can't comment on that. In fact, I think they have a heterosexual manager now. But um, obviously, uh, yeah, a sea change for what they'd had historically. But uh, also, yes, just I think I kind of like, you know, I got them, they got me. And that was that was good enough. And we had a great run. And we worked on some incredible projects, um, including their scores for... Um, I, Eisenstein's Battleship Pachemkin uh, and doing that in Trafalgar Square, but then repeating that around Europe was just like insane, you know, as Neil had it at the time, you know, wow, we've got the biggest art house cinema audiences ever. <laughs> and he's right, 28,000 people in Trafalgar Square on a Sunday, a rainy Sunday night in London, watching a silent movie, <laughs> black and white silent movie you know, on a giant screen underneath, you know, Nelson's column. Fantastic. Amazing, amazing experiences. Yeah, uh, but it's, it's ideas point. like that that just make the world, I think. Now, you just said you're in Berlin, are you, at the moment? Yes, I am. Now, you're working with um, Patrick Mason? Yes, I am. Can you tell uh, me a little bit about what you're doing together? Um, we're uh, just preparing plans to take over the world. Patrick's doing a great job. Um, Yes, um, quite an interesting story about how that came about. And as with most things, you know, the, uh, a few eggs got broken in the making of this omelette, which is a great shame um, in many respects, because it's cost a friendship. Quite under the pressure of COVID, I think a lot of things went right and a lot of things went wrong. And um, one of the good things that came out of it was my relationship with Patrick Mason. And he is now, you know, kind of like playing around the world, all conquering, uh, 
We're in Ibiza for the opening parties of Ibiza the other week, uh, for Amnesia, sorry, and um, uh, fantastic, you know. Uh, and been back uh, for a while and uh, incredible to be, you know, seeing the energy that people have post-COVID, post-lockdowns, to be part of this again. Patrick's the most energetic performer I think I've ever worked with. Uh, he's an incredible dancer, uh, has a great touch for everything and, uh, you know, visually stunning. And so, yeah, we're just having fun. And um, that's always the best way to look at it. And, you know, yes, there's hard work going on and we're paddling like crazy beneath the, uh, you know. What, what does this surface. mean then? What does this mean on your, your CV right at the end? This, uh, you're working on a more physical activation centred on a regenerative project 50 kilometres to the south of Berlin. So what is that? Um, well, when I first moved to Germany, I didn't really move to Berlin. I moved to get away from England. This was post the riots and 2008 meltdown and all of that. And I was looking to, um, to get away from it all. I just optioned the uh, rights to a short story by Australian novelist Peter Carey. And I had this idea that I was going to turn this into an incredible art house cinema piece. And I was going to write and direct um you, you have these kind of follies every so often i do anyway and um a friend of mine said well why don't you just you know kind of like uh you know take this house on my father's estate outside of berlin and you can't be further away from things there's nothing here the closest part of civilization is the petrol station 10 miles up the road which was true and um so i went out there to write and uh it was wind swept and forlorn and there was not much else but my friend julius and myself um his father lived behind a high fence in a castle and we never saw him um, which was good because quite often we'd be raiding the castle for wine in the middle of the night but um great wine cellar uh yeah julius and i um would you know kind of like sit there like Widnell and i you know like we've gone on holiday by mistake it was that kind of world that we lived in. Um, and we'd sit around a kitchen table and talk about the future, something that's always of interest to me. And um, at the time, as I say, it was, you know, kind of windswept and forlorn. But out of conversations around the table, um, it gave birth to things. And now Julius and his partner, particularly his partner, Maria, um, have turned Murkish, Vilmersdorf, which is this little dwarf, a little village, a hamlet, uh, 50 kilometers south of Berlin in Brandenburg, um, into the most incredible uh, regenerative farm program. Uh, they have market gardens that supply um, the pesticide-free, chemical-free um, you know, food to Berlin. Uh, on top of that, they have a massive agroforestry project, which is the biggest in private hands now in Germany. Um, and the idea is to create, I guess, a kind of model for the world going forward. How do you, how do you deal with the problems that we face, which are huge, immense problems? Um, and no one can single-handedly deal with them. Um, and so we need to, I guess, think of new ways of being and new models for the future. Something, again, that's always interested me. I guess, ultimately, I'm a kind of utopian character. And uh, though I'm a daily pessimist, you know, I want things to get better, not worse. 
and very, very pleased to be part of an ongoing dialogue uh, at you know, this um, incredible project to the south of Berlin that I think is one of the leading. I used to sit at the table with Julius, you know, just he and I, late at night, and I'd say to him, this is the leading edge of civilization. You do understand that. And he would kind of like poo-poo me. But, you know, the bottom line is, it is. I'd say possibly as, you know, uh, cutting edge as you could want to be today in all of the ways that need to be cutting edge. You know, uh, they don't till the soil. They've got raised beds. They produce the most incredible food when you put their vegetables in your mouth and their fruit and nuts and everything like this. Just this food, it feels like food. Um, but more than that, it's also, I think, you know, kind of potentially, um, I read a great quote earlier. I can't remember who it was by. Um, someone can write in maybe and tell me. But, oh, I think it was maybe W.B. Yeats, which was the education isn't a bucket that you fill, but a fire that you start. Well, that's fantastic. Well, listen, Dave, it's been brilliant to talk to you. And I'm, I mean, you blow me away at the end. It's so impressive that not because of what you've contributed in your past before, and you've been such an important cultural figure uh, for music, for me, for London, for, for the world in what you've done over your life, which is, you know, I can't speak more highly of, which is fantastic. But then to come to this point where you're looking at something which is for the greater good and something that possibly could um, save our planet, a sort of way of drawing up a template of something for the future for farming, which I find fascinating and amazing in, in the same breath. And well, uh, it's been brilliant to talk to you. So thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure, Steve. And, you know, kind of, yeah, um, when you're in Berlin, I have to take you down to Merkish and you can test the goods, so to speak. But, yeah, I think um, we all need to kind of probably, you know, look to see what a future culture would, would look like, you know? And having been on the coalface, much like yourself, for a lifetime, um, you know, in popular culture, you say, okay, what would a new popular culture be? Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Motts. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. A little something something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. <laughs> we're professional unprofessional, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST, 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 ACAST recommends. recommends.